As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. In almost any country, you find it fairly easy to gather the basic intel. With just a quick Google search, I know the President of France is 42 years old, and the Prime Minister of Canada has three kids. This all seems like fairly basic knowledge, except for one country. North Korea. This secretive hermit kingdom, a buffer between two superpowers still technically at war. The country is so introverted it doesn't even follow our calendar system. Instead of having the year one at the birth of the country's first leader, Kim Il-sung. Where the world sits at the year 2020, North Korea is at the year Juche 109. But it's more than just quirks. The country is often regarded as the most oppressive regime on the planet, with a huge military and nuclear weapons capable of hitting the United States. Or so we believe. Because information is so hard to get out of North Korea. Local intel is spotty, so we rely on North Korean news, satellite photos of cars, flight tracking, all to piece together puffs of smoke to try and determine the size of a fire. When Kim Jong-un, supreme leader of North Korea, stopped making appearances recently, the media began assuming the leader's death. But much like his father, his death is often exaggerated. So this week, we try to figure out North Korea, its geopolitics, its place in the world, and who would likely be his successor if he were dead. And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1 Swallowing the porcupine. Literally imagine something out of Game of Thrones. In terms of, you have a single leader who has a lot of, like, cult of personality vested in him and a lot of centralized decision-making control with a party that, you know, serves as, to help govern the country, but it's very, very opaque. Um, so I guess imagine a, a Game of Thrones type situation where you only, where most of what you know is from like people with either secondhand knowledge or um, you just have a very rough sense of what actually is happening in there. Eric Gomez is the Cato Institute's expert on North Korea and North Korean weapon systems. He is also the Cato Institute's director of defense policy studies and the co-author of America's Nuclear Crossroads. He joins us today. On the open source side, which is just lingo for you know people not in the intelligence community, uh, there, it's actually kind of the tools to get more stuff out is growing. Um, there is a lot of imagery that comes out of, of North Korea. There's a lot of state media reporting which has come out, which is very helpful for folks outside of the country to kind of piece together what's going on. You need to kind of have 
a very specialized knowledge for it. Like this isn't something where, you know how there's a lot of instant experts out there where, oh, this one week they became, they all became epidemiologists because of the coronavirus. And, oh, and now everyone is talking about North Korea because that's in the news. Those people are easy to spot. And folks like me and the other folks we're going to have on this podcast probably sniff them out pretty darn quickly. Um, so it takes some time to like get into it. Uh, and the more you do it, the more you can kind of piece together. But a lot of it is, you know, it, it's, it is very difficult, even harder than another country I work a lot on is China. Um, and even China is a lot easier to get sort of information out of. Well, since you mentioned China, let's start there. How reliant is Pyongyang on the government in Beijing? I think the historical record on this shows that it's it's kind of spotty. Sometimes China and North Korea, when they get along really well, they have obviously China came in to help North Korea fight the Korean War and make sure that uh, it continued to exist as a country. Um, but it's also a the relationship is a bit weird. It's it's not quite like fast friends, um, and oftentimes they're. You know, I think there's fair to say that there's a decent amount of mutual suspicion between the two. Um, oftentimes, North Korea will do things that China doesn't like, especially under Kim Jong-un. Uh, the Probably the most important development back in 2017 was China agreeing to UN Security Council sanctions on North Korea, which is something they haven't done before. And that happened after many, many missile tests and nuclear tests, uh, several of which corresponded with major political events within China. And so their relationship is very, I, I don't even think frenemy is the right word. I, I still think they're relatively friendly countries to one another. But when we talk about reliance, I think reliance implies a level of China's ability to influence the North, which doesn't quite exist. Uh, I think that North Korea is much more of its own, its own thing and has the ability to be that way uh, even without China's full support. So do you think China views North Korea as a partner or just a buffer zone keeping American tanks from being parked just 700 kilometers from Beijing? I, I think it's probably more the latter. Um, there is a certain, I think there is certain a certain aspects of partnership, um, especially in the regards of party-to-party uh, -party relations, which what's very interesting to me, at least about how North Korea deals with China is that the relationship is run by the International Liaison Department in China, which is an organ of the Communist Party, not of the state. Um, so you have this sort of party-to-party -party, uh, relationship. And China tries to maintain party-to-party -party relationships with a lot of different um, political entities around the world. But the way they do it with North Korea is very uh, intense and, and kind of odd. Um, I think the Chinese are certainly not super happy about the nuclear program in North Korea because they see it as something that could bring greater U.S. attention and military presence to the region. Um, so I don't think I think they're fine with like missile testing, whatever. But when it comes to the nuclear testing, I think that's more uh, of a touch point for China. So if China was to push back from the table and abandon Pyongyang, do you think they could sustain themselves? Uh, it would be a serious problem for the North Koreans. Um, I think the the Chinese would probably weigh that decision against what do they want. Like, they probably don't want a full collapse, right? There, there's a difference between trying to punish someone a little bit uh, so that way they, they change a little bit of their behavior 
and trying to like take out the regime itself. I don't think China wants to take out the regime. Um, and even when they were doing some sanctions through the UN, there was plenty of questions about compliance and they were probably letting, in all likelihood, they were probably letting through, you know, enough uh, economic activity to keep the regime from falling apart completely, but restricting it. Um, another thing, though, that I've thought a lot about in this whole, you know, Kim Jong-un health crisis is North Korea is a pretty resilient country. If you think about some of the things they've been through, uh, the Korean War, the um, famines in the 1990s, again, there's a tendency, I think, in the, in the U.S. to kind of view North Korea and Iran, uh, too, that it's a pretty fragile system, right? That, you know, authoritarian systems are inherently not very durable, and therefore we can kind of kick down the whole edifice uh, if we tried. And I don't think the, again, I don't think the historical record supports that. Uh, I think that even if China did cut off a lot of its economic aid to North Korea, it would find a way to carry on. It probably wouldn't look exactly the same, but I think, you know, that isn't going to just magically fix the problem either. So back when the country was formed, China wasn't the major partner. The North Koreans owed their support to Moscow. What is that relationship like today? Good question. Um, <laughs> I know that, you know, Putin and and Kim met for a summit earlier this... Actually, no, I think it, was a, I think it just celebrated its, its one-year anniversary. Um, that was interesting last year because in retrospect, I think... Remember when Trump went to the DMZ and had that kind of surprise meeting with Kim? Um, I think in retrospect, the visit with Putin might have been the start of a process to get to that surprise visit at the DMZ um, because the meeting with Putin was then followed by several other like kind of strange North Korean meetings and moves um, and about a, a week before uh, Kim and Trump met at the DMZ I kind of was like I wonder if they're gonna do that like that it seems more likely now um, but beyond that a lot of the North Korean missile systems especially the SCUDs and SCUD derivatives um, are Russian or are, are more accurately Soviet um, in their like design legacy. But I don't think they purchased those missiles. They didn't purchase the missiles from the Russians. They bought the SCUDs from the Egyptians uh, either back in the 70s or 80s and then like used like some reverse engineering to make some of their own. Um, and some of, I think one of the, the one of the, submarine launch ballistic missiles the North Koreans have tested also looks looks kind of similar to an older Soviet design. But again, that, you know, is that a matter of, I don't think that was a matter of them being sold the missile. Um, I think that might have been a matter of just trying to figure it out based off of some old schematics. So about a year and a half ago, we saw an unprecedented meeting between the leaders of North and South Korea at the DMZ and then further negotiations after that. So what does this signal for relations going forward between the two Koreas? Well, what I hoped it meant back in 2018 was that uh, this time would be a little different and diplomatic engagement with North Korea would actually succeed. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's borne out. Uh, so the way that those meetings happened, it was interesting because Seoul was taking such a leadership role that they really 
were the ones to initiate the current round of diplomatic engagement with North Korea around the time of the 2018 Winter Olympics. And they had the first few meetings and they made real progress. I, I think that it often gets sort of overlooked in the, uh, the, the tragedy of the Hanoi conference and, and, you know, Trump's sort of idiosyncrasies, but the, the two Koreas got a pretty big agreement out of their meeting in Pyongyang near the end of 2018, where they said, uh, they agreed to a sort of demilitarization or de-escalation measure along the DMZ, which was pretty darn good. It involved dismantling uh, certain guard posts. It involved uh, having, I believe, like a sort of like a no-fly zone within certain distances uh, of the border. And they tried to extend it a bit out to the sea where they had historically had a lot of uh, border clashes in the past. And that was a really good agreement. And to the best of my knowledge, both Koreas have been good about implementing it and continuing to adhere to it, even though uh, talks have stalled. Um, I think that offers a really good roadmap for the United States of here's the types of things you might be able to get out of the North Koreans. Um, And before, there's like two stories. It's before Hanoi and after Hanoi. Before Hanoi is what I just described. After Hanoi, things look um, really bad. I had a piece uh, that I wrote in advance of the Hanoi summit um, that said, like, once we got some details on what was going to be in the text of that agreement, that the biggest thing to come out of it, I argued, was U.S.-South Korea alignment. Basically that at Hanoi, if Trump had signed the agreement that they had worked on beforehand, they were going, or if Trump and Kim signed the agreement they had worked on beforehand, the U.S. and South Korea were going to be moving ahead with a similar sort of strategic outlook on North Korea about what to prioritize, a similar uh, like process for engaging North Korea at the tactical level, diplomatically, and it would have been a huge win to get the U.S. and South Korea moving together again, because in before that they were kind of coming at the North Korea problem from different places. And I never was able to publish that piece because <laughs> because the summit failed. Hanoi failed, and since then we've sort of been locked in this extended stalemate, and nothing has really happened. Um, and that's unfortunate because that stalemate applies to the two Koreas. Before Hanoi, they were making a lot of progress together. After Hanoi, North Korea's attention turns to the United States and says, you know, we really care about the sanctions relief. We really want that. And only America can provide that because Seoul isn't going to be like, yeah, we're just going to buck every international sanction and just trade openly with you now. Um, So it's been really frustrating because I think there's a lot of potential. um, I think Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, really wants this to happen, really wants a peace regime to happen. And I just don't think I don't think it will um, at least not until I think something will have to change on the US side in order to give the South Koreans the political space they need to make something happen on their end so everyone went into the Hanoi summit between Trump and Kim with some very high hopes there was a pre-negotiated deal and things were looking good but when both parties left Hanoi with effectively nothing but some empty words what changed why did the progress break down in Hanoi I I was kind of disheartened because I thought they could get agreement on points one through three, uh, right? The peace treat, the peace agreement, the uh, P 
POW remains and the liaison office. Because that way, at least, all right, we can't figure out the sanctions now, but we can have regular communication and contact. Um, but as it happened, the whole thing fell apart. Uh, so yeah, that, I think that's how the breakdown occurred. And since then, it's been just this long thing of, you know, the U.S. insists on denuclearization of North Korea. North Korea says, you know, we're not going to denuclearize, but we may be able to give up some stuff. And uh, someone put it to me really well. They said, uh, it's like a mortgage for a house. And the United States wants North Korea to put down 99% and we'll loan them the 1% to get the rest of the day there. And then the North Koreans want to put down 1% and have the U.S. loan 99 And so you see how that produces a situation where neither side can really uh, make any progress. So that, that's where we are. And, and that is essentially where we have been uh, since a little over a year ago now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So the big sticking point in Hanoi was the nuclear weapons. So let's talk a little bit about those. How much do we know about the nuclear program in North Korea? For example, could the North Koreans launch a missile past the United States missile defenses and hit the U.S. mainland? I would not doubt the ICBM. I assume that they have an ICBM with a nuclear weapon that can reach the United States if they tried. And that, I think, should engender a lot of caution um, among U.S. policymakers when they're thinking about how do I engage them, right? Um, I think there's a risk there in pushing too hard or trying to uh, make things. And, and this is not a consensus viewpoint. Um, there are definitely very smart analysts of missile and nuclear systems out there that I um, like and respect a lot who say that they don't think that they do have the technology to hit the United States. Um, so where I boil down is, is when I think about the uncertainty, which is, which is the right way to be wrong. Uh, and I'd rather assume that they have it and be wrong than assume that they don't and be wrong. What do we know for sure that they do have? Uh, they have several submarine launch ballistic missile models that come out of their single uh, SSB prototype submarine. They've got two different liquid-fueled ICBMs right now, the Hwasong-14 and the Hwasong-15. Um, the 14 was tested twice in 2017. The 15 was tested once. The 15 probably has the range to hit all of the U.S. The 14 probably has the range to hit like the northwest like segment of the U.S. Um, not quite. It's not quite as uh, impressive. Um, 
there's also, I think, the Hwasong... Oh, man, it's been a while since I've talked about this. This is fun. Uh, I think it's the Hwasong 12 is the IRBM, the Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile. That's the one that's probably going to be gunning for Guam um, and potentially Hawaii. Um, so, yeah, they have a pretty... Uh, a pretty advanced program. And this has been Kim Jong-un's most unique contribution to the North Korean nuclear program. His father um, was able to test their first couple nuclear devices, but Kim Jong-un has really done a good job of getting uh, the missile arsenal more diversified um, and also getting the nuclear program itself to keep growing and producing uh, warheads. Uh, there is something to consider like when we're talking about the warhead count, um, they might have up to 60. Uh, I think I think that's a safe estimate, somewhere in like the 40 to 60 range. Um, but it's limited a bit by how many they can put on missiles at one time. As far as we know, they don't have MIRVs, which is multiple independently uh, re-entry vehicles. You, so that would be like if they could fit three or four warheads on one missile. From what we've seen, it's probably only one warhead per missile. And so they probably don't have like 50 to 60 missiles capable of hitting the U.S. Uh, that they could launch all at the same time. Uh, so there is a bit of a limiting factor there in terms of how many launchers they have. Um, but again, this could be something that they're making progress on. We just don't that, know that much about it. So we tend to focus on North Korea's nuclear program and forget they have an incredibly large conventional arms program as well. Even having large amounts of artillery pieces trained on the city of Seoul and its population of 10 million people at any time. How formidable do you think the North Korean conventional forces are? I, I'm, I have like a, a that, that's, that brightness in my voice because um, that's most of what they've been testing uh, in 2019 and, and so far in 2020. Um, you know, with these like large rocket, large caliber rockets, um, these shorter range ballistic missiles, they're getting really good at making solid fuel, uh, shorter range systems. And the, and the reason solid fuel is such a big deal is that, uh, so with a liquid fuel missile, you have to roll it out, usually erect it, although some can be fueled on their side, but it's kind of dangerous. Um, but you have to roll out the missile, put it upright load the fuel and the oxidizer into the fuel tanks and then set it off. And that means a very long time from getting to your firing point to actually launching. A solid fuel missile, the missile fuel is built right into the body. And so you can just roll that thing out, set it up really fast and then fire on the order, you know, maybe like, let's say for example, a liquid fuel missile, if it took an hour or more to set up, a solid fuel missile could probably fire in 30 minutes or less. So you get a big increase in survivability and, and responsiveness. And that's what the North Koreans have been working on so much um, on the conventional side. So far, I don't think that they have any, um, so they're getting better at it. And this is part of, you know, going back to Hanoi a bit, I think one of the problems with the U.S. focusing so much on denuclearization is that it, it's very pie in the sky and there's lots of little things we could have gotten, right? If you if you take more of an arms control focus to negotiating with North Korea, then maybe you can get restrictions on the solid fuel missile program and the number of warheads or launchers they can have at any one time. But if you aim for all or nothing in the denuclearization approach, 
the North Koreans just say, okay, nothing, and then keep building, <laughs> um, which is basically what they've done. What about conventional ground forces? If they were to go to war with South Korea, how far into the Republic of Korea, the ROK, do you think they would get? Yeah, probably a little bit. I mean, um, the, the big difference between 1950 and now is South Korea. Uh, South Korea was essentially had, they had no armor. I don't think they had much of an air force at all in 1950. And they were really caught by surprise. Today, South Korea is much more capable at the conventional level in terms of both the size of its military and the technology they have, a lot of it domestically produced. Um, they are probably one of America's most capable allies in terms of an effective fighting force. And I would probably make a case that they're even sort of in, in Asia, probably even edging out the Japanese in some areas. Um, so I don't think a, a surprise attack would go as well for North Korea as it did before. Um, and South Korea also has the tools to reach into North Korea and really punish them if they tried. So if that were to actually happen, how likely do you think it would be that the Kim regime would use its nuclear weapons? Oh, that's like 100% likely. <laughs> that's what they're for. During 2017, we got probably our best look in the open source of what is North Korean nuclear strategy. And it actually kind of looked a lot like NATO nuclear strategy in the 50s, where NATO was convinced in, in the early balance with the Soviets that we weren't going to win the conventional war, right? The, the Soviets just had too much stuff um, and they could amass more conventional power at us. And so the NATO response to that was, okay, rapid intentional escalation in the event of an attack, right? We're just, we're not going to play around at the conventional level. We're going to go nuclear fast. And, you know, you sort of use deterrence to say, like, hey, you want to run that risk? No, I didn't think so. Okay, let's just live in the in the stalemate. Um, similar aspect to the North Korean nuclear strategy in 2017. When, when they were testing and we were flying the bomber flights nearby, um, I think the biggest one was one after one test, we flew two B-1 bombers, like, not up the peninsula, uh, but out over the ocean parallel to it. And we got out to, like, just within range of some of the conventional standoff munitions. And then the B-1s turned away. But they were like pointing at uh, the North Korean nuclear testing site <laughs> before they turned away. And that, I think, was a big wake-up call um, in terms of, you know, when, when the North Koreans saw that, their nuclear strategy was basically, if we detect an attack incoming from America or South Korea especially one that tries to take out our nukes or takes out Kim Jong-un himself before a conflict can start, we're going to launch and we're not going to wait for that to happen because they can't wait. They know if they wait, they'll lose. And it's a it's not a great place to be in um, <laughs> if you're North Korea. It's also designed to engender some fear and insecurity among America because if America doesn't know what what does what qualifies as being enough to trip a nuclear response then the idea is oh shoot we better not try anything right that, i think that's the hope that the north koreans wanted to get into our system um but yeah they, they have no if they have like solid fuel mobile icbms if they have 
mobile sea-based deterrent with a with an SSBN that can or an SSB they they don't have nuclear propulsion down yet um, that can reach the United States. I think then you start to see a different nuclear strategy develop. But right now they don't have the survivability um, and they don't really have the time if a war were to go hot. So they rely on a if we think that you're about to come for us, we're going to come for you first strategy. Um, which doesn't mean that Kim's irrational, right? I, I think there's a there's a tendency to see like, oh, they have an intentional first use strategy, therefore they're just spoiling for the fight and they're going to lash out. I don't think so, um, because that that isn't good for your survival either. Um, it's more of, you know, don't 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 pretend like you're going to come at us. Uh, but if they don't, if the North Koreans don't see those movements, like in twenty. 19 and 2020 even after the hanoi summit failed there hasn't been a return to that uh, they've tested missiles but they haven't been nuclear armed um or nuclear capable ones they haven't they, they you know they've done their little north korea rhetorical flourishes here and there as they are want to do um but they haven't escalated to try and cause a new crisis uh so i think i think they're a little more careful um and they which is, I guess, you know, good news and bad news. The good news is I don't think that we're going to get a return to the 2017 crisis anytime soon. The bad news is we're in a stalemate that's very hard to leave unless I think the U.S. makes some kind of change in its formulation for doing things with North Korea. If Pyongyang was to launch nukes towards South Korea, do you think the U.S. would respond in kind with its own nuclear arsenal? I don't know. That's a tough one to answer because on the one hand, they've crossed the threshold in that scenario. And so I think from a moral perspective and from like a law of armed conflict perspective, the U.S. can take the gloves off. But at that point, you know, the U.S. can probably do most of what it needs to do on the Korean Peninsula while using conventional weapons, number one. Number two, firing a nuke at the North Koreans especially if it's coming from the continental United States, looks a lot like firing a nuke at the Russians and the Chinese <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of where those missiles are flying and how they're flying. And so you might not want to risk that. Um, but so I, I don't necessarily think it would prompt a nuclear response. I think the U.S. can do most of what it needs to do in terms of targeting the... Now, now what could trigger a nuclear response, though, is does North Korea use a nuclear weapon against South Korea and then say, hey, Washington, you're next. In that scenario, I think, yeah, U.S. uses nuclear strikes. Um, probably low yield, probably cruise and missile and gravity bomb rather than like ICBM or SLBM launched. Uh, again, for those early warning concerns with the Russians and the Chinese I spoke about earlier. Um, so, yeah, because you'd want to use... you'd. In that scenario, if you were worried about attacks on the homeland, you would want to try and take out North Korean nuclear long-range missiles guaranteed. Conventional weapons can do that. Nuclear weapons, you'll just have a more, you know, the, you get a lot more explosive power, so the chance of actually destroying or disabling those North Korean weapons would be higher. If North Korea was to play aggressor, and they were to be defeated, do you think the Chinese would be comfortable with having US troops on North Korean soil that close to their major cities? Right, the, the classic, you know, uh, Korean war concern. Um, I would hope that in a situation of 
all-out war on the Korean Peninsula or Kim regime collapse that leads to um, like civil war within North Korea among different sort of political factions trying to gain control. I would hope that the U.S. and China have already discussed what to do in those situations. I know that there were some discussions between the U.S. and China in 2017 when things were starting to get really bad with the crisis um, to try and, and you know, just, just have a discussion on, hey, what are you guys worried about? What should we be worried about? I don't know how far those talks got. Um, if, if it got to the stage of like, all right, so if things go down, we'll be going in here. You guys go in there. Let's make sure we don't accidentally shoot each other. Um, I don't know if they got down to that level. Uh, but I think there was some initial discussions between U.S. and Chinese officials at the, I think on the military side of like, okay, you know, let, let's talk about potential scenarios. If we were worried about a loose nukes scenario, I think you'd have to include the Chinese in some capacity, right? They would have to be going in, especially uh, the Yongbyon nuclear facility is pretty close to the Chinese border. Um, so they would probably be the ones to secure that site. Because uh, what you don't want is right a civil war, crisis in the country, and a faction getting a hold of a warhead or other nuclear material and trying to use it to blackmail someone else or trying to... I know this was the concern in the Soviet Union when it collapsed was like sell the nuclear material to someone else because the Soviet Union isn't paying you money anymore and you can't feed yourself. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. A common analogy people use for North Korea is the hermit. But I think there's a far better one. The porcupine. The porcupine looks menacing with sharp spikes all over its back. But it knows itself, if it were to attack someone bigger, it would likely end in disaster. Saying that though those spikes serve a purpose, any attempt by a larger animal to eat the porcupine would be incredibly painful and tear up the attacker's mouth and insides. As meals go, this one may be more trouble than it's worth. Any attack on North Korea would trigger an incredibly costly result, a nuclear result. And much like in 1950, it would likely drag in larger powers like China, China has incredibly solid natural borders to prevent attacks from the West. They have the jungles of Laos and Vietnam, the Himalayas of India and Pakistan, the mountains of Central Asia, and the open steppes of Russia to the north. All of these make it nearly impossible to run supplies and tanks through that you would need for a war with China. The only potential weak spot, only 700 flat kilometers from China's capital, is the Korean Peninsula, so China is very interested in maintaining a buffer state 
there would be far more pain to attack than it would be to maintain the status quo. But how do we know about these programs in North Korea? What methods do we have for sneaking out information? Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. Following the Smoke I mean, domestic politics, you know, it's a bit of a tricky thing because there aren't really domestic politics as we would understand them. You know, everything comes from this top-down structure. Um, but when you look at the, I guess, the noise, so to speak, coming out of the country, you know, whether it's media or people, you know, talking at the border, things seem pretty stable. Um, and Kim Jong-un has managed to do uh, what his father couldn't, you know, regarding developing nuclear weapons and having inadequate but steady food supply. So things things look okay. Jacob Bogle is a U.S.-based North Korea analyst who operates the Axis DPRK website. The site hosts the most comprehensive map of the country that's available to the public, and he's been published in NK News, 38 North, and the Asia Times. He joins us today. So Kim hasn't been seen in public since April 11th. Um, but then, uh, you know, a week or so after that, um, an organization called Daily NK uh, wrote a story based on a single unnamed source who they said lives in North Korea. And that report said that Kim had undergone some kind of medical procedure and was recovering. That's it. It didn't say anything about him being gravely ill or a heart attack or anything else. Um, the more sensational stories are either people just sitting around speculating or they're coming from uh, unverified media accounts and, uh, you know, people, places that we have no, no way to know for sure. Even if Kim Jong-un is still alive, he didn't appear at the Day of the Sun celebrations. Regardless of outcomes, that feels pretty significant. Uh, it's very significant, and his going missing or his not attending the ceremony is why all of the speculation is, is going on to begin with. Um, to my knowledge, this is the first time that uh, either Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il has missed uh, the Day of the Sun. And this isn't the first time that Kim Jong-un has disappeared for a little bit, but when you add that to the fact that he missed this extremely important birthday, uh, of his grandfather who founded the state. Um, that's what, you know, gives the, uh, the story a little more gravitas. So let's describe the major players in this story. How would you describe Kim Jong-un himself? Um, I would say, you know, he's the son of the country's former leader. He's the grandson of the country's founder. Um, he's either 36 or 37 years old. Um, we're not quite sure. And that makes him the youngest world leader with a nuclear arsenal. Um, he came to power when his dad died in December 2011. Um, he was actually the youngest of Kim Jong-il's sons, but for different reasons, those other kids got knocked out of the succession. Um, Kim spent a few years in school in Switzerland. Um, this led a lot of people to hope that he would be some kind of a reformer because he received, you know, a better education, got to see how things were done in the West. But, um, after he killed his uncle and his half-brother, I don't think anyone seriously thinks that he's going to turn out to be uh, any more enlightened than his father or grandfather. So how different is Kim Jong-un's policies compared to, let's say, his father's? Kim Jong-il, um, 
came into power when the country was in the midst of a famine. Um, and his policies were about maintaining the stability of the state and his own power. Um, Kim Jong-un has come into power after that. The country had already started, you know, recovering. And so he was and is, uh, you know, trying to be basically the true son of Kim Il-sung. And what I mean by that, he looks like him, he behaves like him, he's fulfilling these regime promises of having a powerful military, of having nuclear weapons, all of these things that have been promised for decades. Kim Jong-un somehow has managed to actually fulfill these things. Now, the country is still poor and still has lots and lots of problems, uh, but from a, a national power standpoint, his, his focus has been getting those promises taken care of. So there are a lot of reports right now that Kim Jong-un could be dead. How likely do you think that really is? Um, I think it's very unlikely that he might be dead. Um, mostly because, I mean, when someone dies, even in a country as closed off as North Korea, um, that only stays a secret for a couple of days. Um, and then you have not only official reports from the U.S. and South Korea saying that at the very least that he's alive, but you have independent reports uh, using commercial satellite imagery that shows his armored train is at the villa and that shows, um, I think this was just released today, that um, his yacht has been taken out and kind of sailed around uh, the beach there. So, you know, all accounts shows he's at least alive. So when the media was speculating over Kim's death, most experts were tipping his younger sister, Kim Yo-Jang, to take his place. Can you elaborate a bit on who is Kim Yo-Jang? Well, she is Kim Jong-un's sister. And now North Korea does have a a number of historically powerful women. Um, But she's the only one that has been routinely seen uh, with Kim Jong-un. Um, at party meetings, at um, whenever he goes off and gives, um, you know, guidance to factories or military units and whatnot. Uh, She's been there right along with him. Um, She is the first deputy director of the Propaganda and Education Department, which is one of the higher uh, government agencies. So that places her in a good position. Um, But at the same time, uh, when it comes to the Politburo, um, in her party ranking, um, she's only number 28. So there's 27 other people ahead of her. Um, her main, or the, the, the main um, thrust against her uh, assuming power should something happen to Kim Jong-un uh, is simply because she's a woman. Um, Korea generally, North Korea especially, has a, a very strong Confucius heritage and that places primacy of men. And within men, you know, the firstborn is, is the guy to go to. And so she would have to overcome uh, her sex as well as she's, she's even younger than Kim Jong-un. And he had a problem um, demonstrating his power um, because of his age. And so she would have to go through that as well. Why do you think it's so difficult to find out such basic information about North Korean leaders? Part of it is how they, um, uh, cons- what they consider matters of state security. Um, for example, Kim Jong-un's age. 
nobody, or I should say, none of the average people in North Korea has a clue how old he is. They don't know his date of birth. Um, they uh, didn't know he had a kid um, until much later. And so the state just doesn't release this kind of information. The only thing that's important is that you do what you're told. Um, and so when you live in that kind of environment, um, when you're running that kind of environment, it's just you know not important to say, uh, well, this person might have a slightly different view than this person. Um, and even with that, that would be dangerous to do because then that invites dissent and you can't have that. A lot of your work is done with satellite photography. What sort of details can we learn from satellite photos of North Korea? Right. Well, satellite photos are extremely important. Um, and satellite imagery tells you all kinds of things. It can show you when they're setting up to do a military drill or when a nuclear test might occur. Um, it can shed light on their economy, how their crop yields are going when a new factory is being built. And so piecing those together, looking at images you know, across time, you end up building this picture of, well, this is exactly what's going on because, you know, pictures don't lie, right? You can use them to either verify what the government has been saying or refute what they've been saying. You know, if they say, hey, we have this wonderful new uh, farm that's going to feed all of the people, well, all you have to do is look at, you know, where it's supposed to be and if it's there or not, then we know. So what about Kim Jong-un? How could we, let's say, use satellite photos to determine his location? Uh, right. Uh, the number of guards, the number of vehicles, um, if one of his armored trains is at a particular location, um, if he's on the coast, uh, like he's suspected of being right now, um, are his uh, boats being taken out? Um, are there greater concentrations of people there at a particular palace or if he's on a, a field guide visit? Um, you know, is there a motorcade nearby? Uh and so, yeah, there's a lot of small details that if you pay attention to, uh, you start to develop a, a picture of what's happening. So what about state television? How can we use that to determine facts and locations and, and army bases? Um, one way, and especially uh, with what I do, um, is not just television, but you know the government reports and things, um, is just to look for the pictures that they show. Um, Places like factories, military bases, their locations are all supposed to be a secret. But if you look closely enough, you can determine you know, certain things about the shape of a building, or maybe there's a mountain off in the distance, and that will help you um, determine the actual location of where you know, whatever they, they're talking about is. And by doing that enough, you build up, well, okay, there's a factory here, and there's a factory there, and here's a base over here. And then that tells you um, the overall picture of their uh, military infrastructure and, you know, what's important to them. So how is North Korea funding itself? Where is it getting its GDP from? Um, anything they can. Uh, North Korea uh, is fairly rich in natural resources, whether that's coal, uh, timber, um, even valuable uh, metals like uh, gold. Um, and even sand, they export sand, if you can believe it. Um, but all of these things add up. And when you uh, join that with their more clandestine stuff, uh, like cyber attacks and stealing money from banks, 
um, you end up with a GDP of around $40 billion. So with Kim alive, what does the next 12 months for Pyongyang look like? Well, I think um, Kim Jong-un being alive really is the only assumption uh, that the evidence suggests. Um, There was a self-imposed moratorium in 2017 on missile testing. They broke that moratorium uh, last year, and testing had continued on up through this year. And so um, once Kim gets back on his feet or whatever happens, uh, I suspect that that's going to continue more testing. Kim has spent a lot of money improving their conventional forces as well, not just nuclear and missile forces. So I think we'll see a lot more military drills, artillery exercises. Um, They're certainly going to be continuing development of their submarine launch ballistic missile program, uh, which they started doing uh, last year. And as far as economics, um, I think we'll see a slowdown when it comes to major construction projects but um, I don't think there's going to be any uh, overall decline in economic activity. Imagine trying to paint a detailed portrait of a person, but only using napkin sketches and vague one-sentence descriptions. This is what a lot of people do when they're piecing together stories about North Korea. Each napkin sketch, a piece of information, a news report, a defector. Each one of these napkin sketches We don't know what order they go in, we don't know how credible each one is, and we don't know how recent it is. The only people who would know are really high up people like the CIA. So that's why we went and got the CIA's former North Korea expert to explain it to us. We turn to our next guest. Part 3. The Strongest Branch uh, North Korea is not a democracy, so <laughs> there would be no questions overtly to their, you know, their representatives, their their top leaders about what's going on. Um, I, I don't think that this is going to be, um, as some people might think, an opportunity for the, the the people of North Korea to rise up against the top echelons of the leadership at this point. Sue Kim is the Rand Corporation's senior policy analyst for North and South Korea. She was also one of the CIA and Department of Homeland Security's most senior analysts for the Korean Peninsula. There's not too many people around who would know more about this theatre than Sue, and we're very glad to have her join us today. What we know about uh, Kim Jong-un, his health, uh, how the North Korean media operates, how the system operates, and we're trying to piece the, you know, the, the, the pieces of the puzzle together. And you feel like you have it, but then the thing about North Korea is you can make all these assumptions and you feel like you have everything but that last piece, uh, you wait for that last piece to kind of make that click to, to get the puzzle completed. And then all of a sudden something completely unexpected happens. So um, as a cautious observer, I would say that there is definitely something that's running amiss. Kim Jong-un has now made a public appearance at a ribbon cutting for a factory after being missing for quite a while, this refuting the claim that he had died. Uh, what are your thoughts on how the media handled this absence? Uh, we saw that President Trump and even Secretary Pompeo, they have alluded to the Kim Jong-un health situation, but neither one of them have actually said, you know, whether or not they, they didn't say that they knew what was going on explicitly, uh, but they did say that there was something, they alluded to the fact that they, they knew of the situation, but they didn't say he was, whether or not he was well, whether or not he was in a bad state. 
the South Korean government, they pretty much just denied it right away. They said that he's actually in good health and that he is walking around his Wonsan resort. Uh, to me, I would think that if I knew information about the North Korean leader, which is a very, very sensitive topic, uh, and, I, and I wanted to maintain secrecy so that stability all around not just North Korea, but other countries would be sort of, you know, kind of put at ease, uh, you would probably want to hold off on ma making any conclusive statements to the public. If there was something really wrong in North Korea, one of the biggest indicators would actually be in northern China. China is deeply worried about a huge flood of North Korean refugees that would flee over the border into northern China if the regime collapsed, causing economic problems for the country's north. So when things are tense, they will always send divisions of men to beef up security on their border and guard the Yellow River crossings. Have you seen any of this kind of Chinese movement over the last two weeks? You know, I haven't seen any movements, um, but I did see the report a few days ago saying that there were 30 people from 30 uh, members of the Chinese medical delegation um, that apparently went to North Korea, assuming I'm assuming that this was significant because uh, there was something wrong with the, with the state of Kim's health. So one of the other rumors floating around was that COVID has hit North Korea very hard. And with Kim's array of health problems, like possibly having diabetes, gout and heart problems, Kim left for the safety of his coastal resort. How credible do you think this rumor is? And do you think Kim may just blame surgery rather than fear of COVID for his absence? I think COVID is, it's a pretty scary and lethal virus uh, that from even just from a normal person's perspective, it, it you would be cautious in, in how you're interacting with people. Um, that said, I think that the leader of a an isolated regime um, who needs to prove his mettle and his his you know the, the solidity of his control and his legitimacy. If the rumors were true that he was escaping COVID and you know that's why he ran to his resort and did not appear for two weeks over two weeks, uh, imagine how that would rattle the perception of of their leader in the eyes of the North Korean population. I mean, they are starving. They're, you know, they're in political prison camps. Uh, you know, they're not being treated as though they are, you know, equal citizens who actually get uh, the bare minimum of their human rights. No matter how, I guess, repressed they are in expressing their political objections to the Kim rule, I think that you know, the, the suppression aside, I would think that if if this leader who was supposed to be lofty and immortal is, is somewhere hiding out in some compound because of a, a virus, I think that would really rattle the perception of and, and their trust um, in the North Korean system. Actually, I, I, I probably shouldn't use the word trust, but, you know, the, the I guess the intimidation um, and, and the ruthless, the iron fisted rule that, that just becomes an illusion and that would I think, shake the foundations of Kim's uh, leaderships. So even if Kim is back, there must be some talk in the North Korean leadership about who might take the top job in the event that Kim Jong-un does die. Theoretically, if Kim were to pass, who would be the most likely to take his place? Most North Korean watchers are probably basing their, placing their bets on Kim Jong-un. 
this is one because she comes directly from the uh, the, the Pekdu bloodline. Uh, there are questions about whether or not she would be able to carry out that role given that she's a female in a North Korean society. Uh, understanding that North Korea, the, the society operates a little bit differently than the rest of us, it's backwards, uh, and, and the leadership, despite the, the progressive and the optimistic reporting that we see sometimes of North Korean females holding leadership positions, um, it's still a very largely uh, male-dominated system. Um, that said, I would think that because Kim Yong-jung comes down from you know the direct Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-un, uh, Kim Jong-un bloodline, uh, that she would be able to um, use the, the Kim family, the royal family blood, to trump all the other considerations. Um, and really, if you think about it, the way North Korean society, the regime, and the, um, the cohesiveness of the Kim role, the reason why it was so successful for three generations was because it passed down from grandfather to, to father to son with no questions. Now, granted, there were some, you know, struggles and resistances, of course, uh, but they were able to largely quash that by executions, by purges and so forth. If a non-Kim were to enter into the picture, it sort of displaces the whole notion of the dictatorship. Um, having somebody else come in, you know, another stakeholder, it, I think, allows room for <laughs> democracy to happen in North Korea. And that's just, it's out of the picture. Uh, as for Kim Myung-jung being a female and, and not having the, the adequate training and the time, I guess, to observe her brother and her father doing their job, essentially. Uh, I do think that despite all of the preparation that she's gotten, um, even her older brother, Kim, Kim Jong-un, uh, had to surround himself with advisors that he could trust and people who knew the system really well, who were able to give him the right advice, uh, who he could probably trust a little bit more than other people. Um, I would imagine that the same thing would be required for Kim Jong-un, uh, one, because she is a female, and I perceive that her threat perception of people wanting to take her down might even be more sensitive because of that. Um, but also because she lacks the experience, she's even younger than her brother, uh, and she's basically alone, you would think that uh, she's going to need, it's going to be a survival mechanism for her. So she's going to probably want to surround herself with people that she could trust. Uh, and yes, she would be, quote unquote, the figurehead, but I do also think that the people who are sort of working behind the scenes for her uh, they would not be able to overtly try to bring her down. Um, there might we might hear about coup attempts. We might hear about people, you know, struggling in between and the the, the workers' party members. Uh, but again, um, I think the facade that we would see about North Korea from the outside world is that she is going to be the leader of the country. Politically, though, where does she sit compared to her brother? So we do not know too much about Kim Yo Jung's political views. Uh, we do know that she has studied abroad when she was a child um, in Switzerland with her brother. So she does have that quote unquote Western exposure. And I don't think that that Western exposure is going to make her any more favorable to interacting with the United States or the rest of the world. Uh, I think the rest, when Kim, Kim Jong-un became leader, the expectation or the hope was that his Western education would 
uh, sort of making make him a little bit more different and open-minded than his than his father and we didn't really see that in fact he was even uh probably more of a even more of a ruthless and you know very harsh leader than his father or his grandfather uh her political views it's it's very hard to say but i would think that because she is a woman uh she might be motivated once again to sort of prove her mettle to the the predominantly male system um also we have to keep in mind that the the nuclear weapons um they're probably not going to be going away anytime soon um the, the north korean leadership the system has basically set up the the nuclear arsenal and the ballistic missile delivery systems for her to use to her benefit um i would imagine that because the the weapons have both a domestic and an international value for her that she would want to she would be motivated to to use them probably perhaps more frequently as she's con- consolidating her leadership um domestically the nuclear weapons can be again um referenced to her excellent leadership for bolstering the the national the, the North Korean self-deterrent uh, capabilities against the hostile US forces it's i mean the rhetoric has already just been set up they just have to basically put her name where um where it belongs and you know she's doing so much for the country and she's protecting her people and it also gives her solidification of a leader within the country externally um it also helps to uh to, to demonstrate her um the coercive leverage that North Korea has uh by you know testing and launching it it, it keeps North Korea on our radars occasionally you will see countries willing to negotiate with North Korea perhaps even offering aid so to sort of tamp down um the provocation so uh if anything uh she might be even more ruthless um and probably tougher than her brother so back to kim jong un now what do you think his reaction will be to the rumors of his death um he's pro- he might be more emboldened i guess to to prove that his virility is is still intact that uh you know as a leader of this pariah state that he should he still remains a force to be reckoned with and again you know he demonstrates that with his his nukes and his missiles and and all these other ways to provoke his his regional neighbors to look at south korea now the goal of the korean war was the integration of the two koreas and for a long time that was the major goal of both sides now though the south korean public doesn't seem as keen in recent surveys done around 60% of south korea would not want to let north korea become a part of a south korean led korean republic Why would the average South Korean be against North Korea joining them? Well, I think it's 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 uh one it's the the economic burden that would be placed on the the South Korean people. Um as as great as it would be for the two Koreas to to unite and for, you know, the the bridges to be repaired between the two countries. Um it does impose um a lot of costs and we're not just talking about the financial aspect but you know the the education systems between North and South Korea are just so different uh one lags so far behind the other that for North Koreans to catch up it might take long um there are also uh you know psychological costs that you have to think about um even you know other like very specific specialized uh differences such as like the medical capabilities of North Korea versus South Korea 
to overcome this this gap that, ex- that has been growing ever so widely between the two countries over many decades, uh, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of patience. And as you know, there's political tides that you have to consider, especially in South Korea, uh, where you know under one administration, um, it could be a very pro-North and engagement um, system that you're working with. Um, after five years, it could be a very conservative, more hawkish stance where they do not want to engage unless North Korea takes steps to dismantle um, and, and show that it's taking steps to denuclearize. Um, so there's the continuity element, too. Um, also, there's the the generational differences in the way the North Korean threat and North Korea is viewed. Um, I would, I think that uh, among some young generations, uh, the the economic burden imposed on them is also distasteful. Uh, but they just don't really see the the uh, the importance or the the the, ne- the, the, nece- the necessity to for the two Koreas to unite. I mean, they've been living apart for two as two countries since the Korean War. That. For them, they just don't see the value of, they don't see the added benefit of, you know, a united Korea. So the economic costs, the the societal, the psychological costs as well, as well as the, the political, the shifts in the, the political views of, of North Korea and reunification. So they may not be very integrated with the South Koreans, but they are very integrated with the Chinese at the moment. What is the relationship between Pyongyang and Beijing like at the moment? Well, China's been interested in in, in North Korea because it, it it helps to have this buffer state uh, armed with nukes and missiles um, to sort of ward off the, um, the the rise or I guess the the growing influence of the United States in the region. Uh, of course, I wouldn't say that China likes having nuclear weapons fight with its neighbor. But so long as the weapons keep a certain amount of stability um, within North Korea, um, there's no humanitarian spillage over into the border into China, uh, it's it's been okay. Um, it also works as a very helpful uh, negotiating chip uh, when it comes to China-US relations. And we saw that taking place uh, during the U.S.-China trade war last year, um, not an overt, you know, wagging, or, you know, showing off the, the relationship between, you know, North Korea and China overtly during the negotiation, but uh, the timing of certain meetings that took place between Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders, uh, the trips that were taking place, it, it's all to to give the United States, the the psychological and the the, the strategic I guess, pressure to say that uh, we still have um, our relations with North Korea that could, you know, with one, I guess, with one push, uh, could also make all of your efforts on the denuclearization front kind of go to naught. Uh, so that's, that's how China sees it. Uh, North Korea also, um, as much as Kim Jong-un um, is, is perceived to, um, quote-unquote, defer to Xi Jinping, it's not one out of sincerity, I would say. It's one out of necessity. Um, North Korea needs China. Uh, Kim Jong-un especially needs, um, because he's still relatively young as a leader, uh, he needs the backing and the endorsement of, of a more senior and a more, quote-unquote, established presence um, in his negotiations with Washington and also as a threat element to uh, countries like South Korea. 
Um, and that's where his relationship with China comes in. So it's, it's it, you know, it, it, there's got, there's a symbiotic element to it. Um, the, the rhetoric about the North Korea-China friendship for, for spanning since the Korean War, um, it helps to, to keep the ligaments intact. But I would say that it's not one that, you know, it's not like the U.S.-ROK alliance, I would say. Some U.S. officials seem very confident that North Korea would give up its nuclear program before the Hanoi summit. But what would giving up the nukes mean for the Kim regime? If the regime ever gave up nuclear weapons, uh, there might not be a Kim family ruling North Korea. And there might not be a North Korea at all. Uh, the reason why we have North Korea, the reason why we have the Kim family is because of the the sacred and the the all-powerful nuclear weapons program that's really saved them. Um, should North Korea give that away, that is that should be that might be read as a sign that they're surrendering, um, and that would mean that you know the reunification of the two Koreas would probably take place um, under a more you know it, it it will not be a North Korea influenced. The, uh, reunification, but it would be something where you know North Korea, the leaders would have to step down. Um, it would it would essentially just mean the end of the regime and end of the the North Korea that we've known known it to be all this time. So, what do you think the next twelve months for North Korea look like? Probably more provocations. Um, you know, they're going to be careful about how far they go, of course, because they don't want to tip the balance um, that's been maintained so far. But I think so long as uh, we're letting North Korea get away with um, launching these short-range missiles, um, provoking South Korea and Japan, and they're able to sort of maintain their relevance, uh, they will continue to do that. Even with Kim's return, there's so many underlying problems in this small insular nation. The Kim family has no concrete succession plan in place if the leader were to just suddenly die. And every single destabilization of the country is like a roll of the dice for the whole house of cards coming crashing down. The added danger of this is that when it does collapse, we don't know which direction it will go. Would a high-ranking general take over? Would it be Kim's little sister with a need to prove herself and a chip on her shoulder taking over? Would it just break down into a civil war for a country where almost everyone has been through military training? and small arms are plentiful. All of this under the shadow of 60-odd nuclear weapons, and a military doctrine of use them or lose them in the mix. But this is way bigger than just Korea. When Japan invaded China in the 1930s, they started off by securing the Korean Peninsula in the 1910s, and then used it as a springboard into the heart of China, occupying large swaths of the country and bringing about the deaths of around 25 million citizens. Beijing has not forgotten this, and will do whatever it can to make sure the Western forces don't have that same launch pad to wield against them. It plays to China's advantage to have the price for this springboard being a likely nuclear exchange that would end with the estimated deaths of 20 million South Koreans, a price by Beijing's estimate the US would be unwilling to pay. But this now matters to the US a lot. With the North Koreans now being able to hit the US mainland, it's having a serious effect on US domestic politics as well. People want something done about North Korea, but what can the US really do? 
Kim Jong-un is surely witness what happened when Saddam Hussein of Iraq or Muammar Gaddafi of Libya gave up their nuclear ambitions, leading to their brutal deaths. These weapons allow Kim to be sitting at the table with the US president as an equal, portraying Kim on North Korean state television as the US and North Korea being on equal footing. Something unheard of for a country of North Korea's size. But Kim has that luxury, thanks to his nuclear program. One, he would never give up without admitting defeat. The US can't solve this problem easily. They can't go invade. Even the risk killing the Kim family would be far too high a price for the uncertain and dangerous power vacuum it would open up. A power vacuum with nuclear weapons. Domestic pressure on this issue is mounting and they can't just stay out of it forever. But not much can be really done. Meanwhile, North Korea continues to grow into a thorn in the US's side. A thorn it can't afford to remove. Thank you so much to everyone who listened in for this episode. With North Korea changing so quickly, we had to write, shoot, edit, and release the show within three days. But we are incredibly proud of the result. Last episode, I put out a call for Patreon donors to help donate to the show and get the show transcribed as so many of you asked for. And we've had a great response. To our patrons who just joined us, as well as the existing ones, and a handful of one-off private donations, I honestly cannot thank you enough. You supporting this show really does mean the world to me. If you're an existing Patreon, you should have an email in your inbox now with the university-level transcript of our Russian Arctic episode. And you'll be receiving a transcript for this North Korean episode in the next couple of days, with more to follow. We'll also be inviting all of our Patreons to be submitting their own questions to the show, which I will then call our wide variety of experts to get them answered on a live, private Q&A session between the Patreons and myself. And this will be happening each month. This is just the start of what we can do to give back to the people who keep this show running. If you would like to be a part of these think tank meetings, you can donate now for as little as $5 a month, with every single dollar going towards the show and my staff. I don't take a single dollar for myself on this project, and my aim is solely to bring you the best show possible. If you want to follow the show on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Red Line Pod. Or you can follow me on Mike Hilliard Oz. Thanks again to our amazing guest this week. If you want to follow Eric on Twitter, you can find him on Eric Gomez Asia, where he links to his amazing book, America's Nuclear Crossroads. Eric is not only one of the most informed people on this subject, but he's also a genuinely nice guy and it was a pleasure to work with himself and the Cato Institute on this project. Jacob Bogle can be found on Twitter at Jacob Bogle, and you can visit his website accessdprk.com for the most detailed open source map of North Korea open to the public. It really is an amazing resource for anyone interested in North Korea. It was amazing to be able to get Sue Kim on the show for this one. You really won't find many people better than Sue Kim for this subject. And you can find her and her great work with the RAND Corporation on Twitter at Miles Sue Kim with two O's. We also can't forget about our amazing friend Mark Spencer, who provides the additional vocals for the show. It was his birthday a few days ago, and we wish him a sincere happy birthday. Once again, thank you, Mark, for all your help with the show. We'll be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But for now, thank you, and good night.